Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 541. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, the most proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this wonderful network, go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Ashley Dudarnock. Ashley's been on my show before. She's a Chinese serial entrepreneur, award-winning digital marketing professional, and multiple-time author. Recognized as a guru on digital marketing and fast-evolving trends in China by Thinkers50, Ashley's the founder of the China-focused digital marketing agency, Alaris, and China digital consultancy, Chozan. She's also the author of 10 books about digital China, including her latest, Innovation Factory, China's Digital Playbook for Global Brands, which was co-written with Ron Wardle. In this conversation with Ashley, we discuss the Chinese digital landscape. What are some of the salient trends? What can Western brands learn from Chinese corporations? The place for purpose in China. The sense of trust that Chinese citizens have with Chinese companies. The leadership challenges and management styles. And a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a wee moment, go over and drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Righty-ho, Ashley Dudaranok. Lovely to have you on my show. You are a beacon of energy, an expert on China, and whoa, so productive on books. In your own words, who is Ashley? Ashley is a Chinese serial entrepreneur. That's who she is. And working with digital and reinventing the future of retail. I think that would be the best way to describe it. And I'm so, so, so happy to be here on your show. Thank you so much, Minta, for bringing me on. Well, you you certainly are a charismatic individual and, and you lead by example. Uh, you Your LinkedIn is a, a treasure trove for anyone interested in working on China or doing anything in China. Um, so tell us, uh, what is your business actually? Mm, I've got uh, three main businesses all related to China. My teams are in Hong Kong and Shanghai and Shenzhen. And basically the first business is more on the training and consulting side where we train global companies how to be more successful in China with the relation to their marketing, commerce, and also bridging their global team and local China teams together. So it could be anything from operating a particular platform like Tmall, how to operate Tmall better, how to understand a consumer better, how to map a customer journey. And uh, apart from training, we also do quite a lot of consulting in that space. Um, the second business is from the digital marketing side. That's where we come in and we ultimately audit the brands. How is our brand doing in the China market? Where is the benchmark? What does good look like? And how do we get there? So in other words, we help brands, big brands yearly to reinvent their China digital strategy. And then the third component to all that, we also do a lot of learn from China episodes where global tech giants look at China's digitalization and they say, wow, this is typically incredible. There were some mistakes, but there were a lot of successes. How do I take those lessons and implement them in the home market and hopefully shorten my learning curve? So if it's a 
a platform that looks into social commerce or live streaming or community retail or, uh, you know, on demand, let's say entertainment, they come and they learn from China. So we deliver that in a form of keynote presentations or, you know, training courses, consulting, uh, consulting projects, etc. So that's why it's mostly digital and mostly um, learn from China or learn for China. Mm. I feel like there's a new uh, acronym, WFC. You know, or L- <laughs> LFC um, coming. So you you're you have written many books. I don't know how, how many books you're up to, but I, I do want to get uh, to to talk about your the the book that I think is your last Innovation Factory, China's digital playbook for global brands that you co-wrote with Ron Wardle. But how many books have you actually written, Ashley? You have a you're a stunning production. Eleven, eleven, 11. today. Eleven. Congratulations. And, and, you know, in between the time that it took us to get this interview uh, up and running, you'd all, you also just published Metaverses for Business. <laughs> so, But I must say, I, it's, it's very flattering. Thank you so much. But I must say, these are called mini books. And uh, for those that are watching us, uh, you know, as of through a video medium channel, they will see that these are... Uh, tiny little books and they're 140 or 50 pages. So what I call one hour book, right? You get on the flight and you basically are through with this book uh, before the meal comes. So that's the outcome that you get the condensed knowledge and it's easy and simple to understand because you can go as deep or as light on China as you want, right? So what we are ultimately trying to do is I've got three bigger books. They're much bigger. They are deeper on, you know, the topic of Chinese consumer. Then there's one deep on the topic of China's new retail. And there's one deep book about the bloggers, how do um, influencers and all these MCNs, multi-channel networks operate in China. So these are bigger books. Uh, but everything else are small mini books, um, introduction into the topic, be it a PR crisis or metaverses, because everybody was talking about this extended reality and metaverse. So we were looking into, OK, so how do we actually use them for businesses? What's happening in China? What's happening in the rest of the world? And right now, Innovation Factory, it's also a small uh, book that is uh, tapping into the topic of what can we learn from the China um, digital transformation recently in three areas, right? Which is uh, the uh, community, uh, ultimately retail and social commerce. It is the leadership models. And of course, it is building of tech ecosystems. So these are the three major topics covered in that last one. Indeed. And and, uh, so last time you were on my show was 2019. And we were talking about new retail and, and uh, it's fascinating. And I do want to get into this uh, idea of what can Western companies possibly extract from, from the way Chinese companies operate in the good way. Uh, maybe a little less, but we'll talk maybe uh, according to time on, on how to approach China if you're, if you're wanting to do that. But let's just sort of lay the scene in terms of what, where is China today uh, in terms of the big uh, the penetration of internet online, the penetration of smartphones, uh, because we we get a lot of I would say conflicting information in terms of the way the foreign press will portray China, depending on their angle and and their their worry beads. But give us a lay of the land in terms of the tech and and then what are the some of the how how are we doing with all the big companies through. Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and all that, uh, versus any Western companies. Are any any Western companies actually 
penetrating into China in any significant way? Mm. A very broad question, but I'll Indeed. try to <laughs> to enter with the uh, with a couple of uh, numbers and facts. So, when it comes to China, China has the highest penetration rate of smartphones in the world, and the penetration rate is eighty two point eight percent, nearly eighty three percent. So that's around one billion people. When it comes to the internet, obviously. Nearly everyone has an internet unless they are below six years old and they just do not own a phone. Uh, a good friend of mine's uh, grandmother is 93 years old. She owns a smartphone. She orders her own Didi as of her own Uber, right, to pick mm-hmm. her up and she orders her own groceries online. So um, when it comes to, you know, China as a digital environment, uh, it is very unique because First of all, China up until recently was a rather young country uh, where people have undergone through multiple rounds of transformation and uh, reinventing themselves. So if you look at Lift Changed Index, which is the index that tracks the way your life has improved on your parents' life. So if my grandmother went to the bathroom, you know, outside of the house, then my my mother had a, uh, you know, toilet kind of uh, in suite and I have a jacuzzi at home. So things like that. China is uh, 30 times. That index is 30 times number one in the world. The second closest country is uh, basically eight times. And the U.S. is very, very low on the list. It's only two or three times, basically, in the last 30 years. So China has gone through a lot of change over a very short period of time. So people were, back then, when the digitalization was just initiated, let's say 30, 20 years ago, very young, uh, interested, excited. They were given a try to that technology. They did not have those legacy systems like credit cards, right? They did not have to um, go through... Uh, laptop uh, through a through a, a PC computer in order to get to mobile, etc. So that is why the transformation was happening really, really fast, and that has also birthed um, very demanding consumer, very excited consumer, the consumer that is digitally connected, and of course we have companies that are serving those consumers that have both shaped them and are right now serving them. So these companies evolved into really strong ecosystems. And that's what we do not really have in the West that much. While many firms, big companies are right now basically acquiring each other and trying to tap into similar services. And they are trying to build super apps, for instance, and you know expand into broader spheres of influence. Um, in China, the transformation was very organic. So take Tencent as an example. They started from, uh, you know, games and then uh, doing social networking and then opening a super app, WeChat, which was a horrible copy of WhatsApp back in the day, but evolved very, very quickly into a super app that right now, uh, famously, Elon Musk says that this is the most comprehensive app in the world and everybody should, uh, should, you know, kind of copy and move towards that uh, thing. So then they integrated payments, they integrated peer-to-peer transfers, ultimately acting as a bank, later on uh, opening up their IP uh, and IPI for mini programs, so encouraging developers to develop apps within the app, et cetera, et cetera, right? So China went uh, into ecosystems where a company is trying to dominate um, the portion of life 
of a customer and provides a variety of services. And then China obviously went into super apps and beyond WeChat, we have, um, you know, Alipay, we have Meituan Dianping, we have, you know, Didi, even Gaudo Ditu, right? Uh, uh, Gaudo, it's basically a map app, also has their own kind of super app features. Uh, By dances pro- uh, programs and mini programs and apps also have those features. So this is where China is today. It is definitely a unique Galapagos, uh, like a like a digital Galapagos, because we have unique animals, we have unique landscape, and it is very isolated because your question was also, so what's happening with the Western companies in China? Back in the day when I was uh, still living in uh, Chongqing, I went to school in Chongqing studying business and economics, um, The Facebook was still in China, Google was in China, all these companies were operating and competing together with their you know Chinese counterparts um later on the regulations were introduced that if you would like to operate a digital business in China you need to store data about the users on mainland Chinese servers and that is when Google and you know right now meta but then then Facebook and others decided to ultimately move their businesses out there were a couple of platforms for example LinkedIn probably one of the best known ones that actually continued the battle up until very very end but then last year they also or earlier this year I think it was they also decided to exit uh, social networking side of business uh, LinkedIn is still in China as a recruitment platform, but they are no longer operating as a networking app because they were basically saying that <clears throat> it is not sustainable to maintain service just for China. It's basically a business decision. So at least this is the official reason. And of course, my personal interpretation of all that is um, in the past, let's say, five, 10 years, um, the speed of innovation and the demands of that market are just way too much for you know for whatever we have in the west so even if today's version of x ig facebook or youtube were um, accessible in china they would very likely be a lot less successful than the local counterparts yeah because the the market has moved on so much in talking about the the chinese situation I was also interested, I, and I and I can't remember. I didn't check my facts, but it seemed that there is um, some limitation of usage for the young people who are in 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 the effort of keeping education stronger. What is where is that about, and how controlled is that actually? Right. So that's all about the games. If you are gaming and you are below eighteen years old, then there is a government. Um, a requirement that you only game a certain number of hours a week and you are not allowed to game during like work week uh, only on weekends or public holidays <laughs> and that is actually done in order to uh, well official reason is yes in order to prevent uh, children from being addicted uh, china is a huge gaming market number one in the world and chinese companies actually are publishing a lot of games um, and developing a lot of games. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, fans in China that basically cannot get their hands off uh, of those uh, streams. Um, I'm just looking at some data and the number of approved games by China's regulators this year 
was already more than 500. And last year, they approved only 666 games. So what does it mean? It was not just about restricting the user access as of young user access to the games but chinese regulators also looked at what kind of games are being published and introduced into the market as we all have heard in the past three four years china has been going through a very big wave of regulation they were regulating tech and that's also um, a very different approach compared to the west in the west we typically a technology is barely birthed and we stand around it and we uh, talk about how do we regulate it so it doesn't get out of control. In China, typically, if a technology is burst, be it blockchain, be it gaming, be it whatever, um, we let it flourish. Let's see where it takes us. And once it becomes big and important and it's, you know, um, we already understand what's its uh, direction or some of the dangers or some of the potential applications, that's when the regulators come in and start introducing rules that they think make sense. So um, that is why, yeah, this time it was basically very few um, games were uh, allowed to be published, uh, plus young user controls were introduced, but uh, already starting from this year, it looks a lot, a lot better compared to before. Well, um, if we just stick with this notion for the youth, I, I have to imagine that they, some of these youngsters are quite savvy and know what a very private network is and figure out ways around it. <clears throat> but is that is that something that is uh, unadvisable uh, for them? And, and will there be crackdowns on that kind of a thing? Or is it sort of somewhat loose? I do not know what you mean by the private network, but ultimately uh, VPN, VPN. VPN, right? So VPNs in China are officially banned, but of course everybody's using it. So it's not a, it's not a, um, a, a, half of the people that I know in mainland China are on Instagram. Instagram is not officially, officially, um, yeah. uh, Again, in the market, right? So people access videos from YouTube. People listen to the songs that we listen, you know, offline. People watch the movies that are not being released in cinemas. Um, a friend of mine is working for a Chinese uh, company called ITE. And ITE is like a Chinese sort of kind of YouTube plus Netflix. And they produce a lot of uh, movies and, you know, shows and all that, not only for China, but also they have presence in the Southeast Asian market. So a lot of their in-demand content is actually BL. BL is boys love. So it is very often a homosexual story that is both appealing to heterosexual women and, let's say, homosexual um, communities. So what do you think? Who do you think accesses that content? Not only, you know, the Thai audience, right, outside of China, but but also the mainland Chinese through VPNs uh, get access to it. So it is very, very interesting. Um, Chinese uh, digital, um, let's call them netizens, they are very digitally savvy. They do have accesses to paid VPNs and services. But of course, when we talk about them, it is typically wealthier Gen Zs. These are typically more educated Gen Zs. These are typically people that traveled abroad, that have interest in what's happening, you know, in the rest of the world, etc. They have, you know, uh, hobbies and, you know, connections all around uh, the world. Um, there is also a very big majority in China that is very, very local. And we shall not forget that talking about China, anything you say is a generalization. 
It is such a big country. You think about China as Europe. You know, people in Germany are not uh, are not the same as people in the south of France or in Finland or in um, let's say anywhere else, right? So um, Chinese in the north, south, center are very different. Plus. Where do you come from? What's your educational background, et cetera? It's a huge country, 1.4 billion people. So, of course, there are a lot of young, uh, also Gen Zs, that uh, live in smaller towns. Uh, they are gaming. They are very much, uh, you know, um, uh, proud of the country, of the rise of Chinese brands. They are voting local. And they have their own completely different pace. And maybe these are the people that, unless they have a very strong reason, like they need to access the game that cannot be accessed, you know, in China, they would really not have any interest in getting the, the VPN and accessing anything outside of the country. But the ones that uh, have such a need or desire uh, definitely can get it quite easily. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this will continue. And actually, interestingly, right now we have a former... Uh, former politician, I forgot which one, so I don't want to lie to you, but one very prominent former politician who is calling in China to introduce free internet in certain zones to encourage international uh, companies basically, you know, setting up offices, etc. So they... There is talk at the highest level about introducing those zones, which would be very, very cool. And of course, that will introduce even more freedom when it comes to internet access to the general public, I believe. So it's like a duty free in Shenzhen, right? Isn't that the. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, Ashley, uh, talking about regulation, the interesting point you made that in China they sort of let, let tech birth and, and flourish and then regulate. Uh, and you suggest that the West uh, regulates as soon as it's born. I would argue that even if in the West they 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 wish to regulate, the regulators don't know what on earth is going on. And I would argue with anybody who thinks they know how to master artificial intelligence and what you're trying to do inside your company. So even if regulators are starting early, it does still feel that there's a wild Western element to the Western way that the the businesses are being grown and the and the way that it's regulated by people who struggle like senators or house representatives in America or elsewhere to actually know. I mean, the number of times that I speak with people who are in political office, who have a, a, a telephone with banners, the little red things on top of all the apps with thousands of unread messages. I, I feel like they have a long way to go. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, attempt to regulate doesn't mean that this is effective regulation. And of course, it is also impossible to regulate uh, anything before you understand. So where is this going? Am I qualified to give it direction or who shall be that council ultimately that determines what are the important challenges and what right now is not, you know, kind of our priority. Um, but yeah, but um Ultimately, in China, up until very, very recently, it was all about, okay, something new popped up, let it, let it go first. And once it becomes important, then we come in and we basically, we uh, look into how to sort that house clean. And uh, yeah, I've also watched those, uh, I think, uh, Senate hearings that we've all, I think that you are referring to when they ask, keep asking whether the app has access to Wi-Fi. <laughs> It's cute. And it's, it's cute. very, very difficult to yeah to keep a straight face. 
if that's the level of uh, understanding. Mm. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So uh, there, I wanted to ask about, uh, let's say, the, the, the things that are hard to replicate outside of China. Because it was my understanding, this is how I, I view these things, that the, the reason for this sort of super app and the success of these big companies in China is related in part to the fact that your almost code of admission, your username is more the, the way you pay as opposed to in, in Europe or in the States where everything is by email. So I open up an email address, I can attach more or less my real name, and that gets me access. Whereas in China, it seemed to me the Tencents and Alibabas of the world, you start with putting in your money uh, link, and that is your identifier, or at least that's what I understood is part of the Chinese difference. Um. So Chinese social media and let's say digital landscape is different in a few ways. First of all, in the West, back in the day, when people were still looking at Amazon and thinking that Amazon is only selling books uh, online, China was already purchasing everything online because of SARS. SARS came, people were scared, nobody was you know, going out or traveling, and that was a necessity. So people were forced to move to Alibaba, to a platform called Taobao, to purchase daily necessities. And that was a big, big push towards the digital lifestyle. Back then, um, Alibaba started acting as a bank. Why as a bank? Without a license, by the way. Why as a bank? Because um, when you purchase the product, they would not release your funds to the seller before you said that you received the product and you're satisfied with it. So they acted ultimately as the intermediary saying that I'm going to hold your funds and I will only release them later on when you are happy. So today, Chinese consumers have enormous trust placed with the platforms, with the bloggers, with the ecosystem. And in the West, we didn't really have that now, up until uh, much later, first of all, the desire to even go and purchase online. Why? I want to touch. I want to feel. I want to, you know, I want the whole process. So they didn't have this push towards the digital consumption. Number two, they didn't really trust because there was so much. First of all, there was this internet bubble, right? The bubble where people saw large platforms becoming um, kind of big and famous and then dying overnight. So there was not much trust placed into those players. And of course, why would I send my money somewhere? I actually have credit card. Why can't I pay directly to this brand? Why should I pay to some platform with my credit card uh, then to potentially receive this part? It was just really, really confusing and not clear. And again, trust was missing. 
Um, and going forward, China was able to turn that into a whole um, digital identity um, kind of verification pool. Because later on, when you had, let's say, WeChat, right? WeChat at first was, a, uh, as I said, not a very exciting copy of, uh, let's say, WhatsApp, right? It was just a messenger. But they, at one point, introduced peer-to-peer -peer payments. And they actually promoted those peer-to-peer -peer payments during the Chinese New Year, where people sent each other red packets full of money. So if somebody, if Minter today sends me $100, uh, as a gift, I actually want to withdraw this money. I want to convert it in real cash. And then I also, by receiving this money, opened my wallet and I can send it to my friends, kids or to whoever. So that became a really, really big thing, this peer-to-peer -peer transfers. Again, they acted as a bank, but they were not a bank. Uh, and later on, they opened payments, connected. So they started with a habit first. And habit always came from the need. Rather than inventing the need and pushing your customer there, they said, okay, SARS, right now that's what we need. What, what's stopping my customers from buying? Oh, the fear that they're not going to get the product. Let me hold the money first. And, you know, if anything goes wrong at any point, customers always right. They will always get their money back. Um, same with WeChat. Same with, you know, all other apps. And today we have a situation that because real money, real economy is involved, people are a lot more encouraged to actually verify their real identity. So you have this kind of digital clone of yourself online and you have this unified ID. And of course, we are not at a stage yet where each person, just like in physical world, we only have one copy of Ashley in the physical world. And in the digital world, we don't have just one uh, basically representation of Ashley it's not one unified idea across all ecosystems, but within an ecosystem, there typically is one unified ID with your real name. Why? Because it's also connected to your outside wallet and you can do all sorts of transactions. You can take a loan, you can contribute to charity, you can pay your government bills, you can apply for the divorce certificate with your husband or wife, all in one place. So that, of course, is very, very unique to China as well. And a lot of people uh, outside of China start um, introducing that, you know, that whole black mirror scenario saying that, okay, now, uh, you know, um, there's, a, there's a social credit system and there is, you know, total control and all your uh, transactions are being traced. And, and, and of course, it could go there. Very, very unlikely, but it could go there. But it could go there with any technology. This is just technology. And ultimately, in the current situation, in the current 2023 scenario, it introduces extreme convenience to the customer and it introduces a lot of level of control for the company. And yes, introduces some um, convenience also for the government. For example, in China, they are able to catch a, uh, let's say, um, criminal, right, through facial recognition, identify where the criminal is within 35 seconds. So, of course, all of this comes together. But um, uh, ultimately, on the consumer level, on the customer service level, I've just recently returned from the US. And when I compare that to mainland China experience, because I just spent a, a week in Beijing, it was just back-to-back -back New York, Beijing. I can tell you, I will take China model at this particular state as a customer anytime because of the convenience, because of the speed, because of the connection, how connected all these touch points are. Well, it's most interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, 
you're the way you describe it you have this uh, a very pragmatic approach to to growing uh, and 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 one that seems to be really focused on the the problem of the customer the desire and habits of the customer you have the special instance of SARS the way it impacted China and made e-commerce quicker just like covid in the rest of the world made work from home a reality you also and you as you write in the book you talk about how they sort of skip some of the technological advancements and then end up with this mobile now with the uh the the credit card or at least you know access to money and and then also you didn't suffer the consequences of the bubble so that that makes for quite a, a big soup of things ingredients for this customer centricity and and the arrival of super apps because it just feels like the 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 chinese are rushing uh, all these companies are rushing to the be the king of the pie with all the apps and do you know like the amazon the book was called by uh, isaacson the the everything store it's like everything is what these super apps are doing and it doesn't feel like the west is going to get anywhere near to super apps in part because of lack of trust in part because of not really centered around the money piece follow the money and and three i would also suspect that there's elements of regulation that won't allow for the that overly monopolistic uh t- titanic size the government probably would be scared in the west mm-hmm. to have any more power in the hands of a super app google or alphabet or a super uh, facebook plus instagram plus plus whatsapp and so on mm. yes i agree um when it comes to the western unique western challenges trust is a big issue um because there's so much talk also you know in the media on the individual level and again people people view technology as a threat rather than as a friend because likely they have experienced um i don't know identity theft they have experienced uh subscribing to a service and then just being spammed uh nonstop and 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 um when it comes to also you said follow the money right in china you follow the money absolutely payment is uh, paramount important because you need to have conversion data um through all these touch points you as a platform you as ecosystem you're con- collecting data but what is the most valuable data data is not created the same right it comes in levels the most valuable data is the conversion data when you actually make a purchase when you actually buy a product receive a product and then don't return it back not just interaction data or oh, ashley spoke with minta about a dog last sunday that's also a data point but if ashley purchased a pen yesterday at 7 p.m and it was a purple pen this is a completely different quality of data um yes and apart from all that the western platforms are not really customer centric as much as they would love to appear and there's a lot of talk about customer centricity you only feel it and experience it when you actually go back to back as you said new york beijing I mean, just just do that trip, do that journey, and you will see that it is not the same. Being customer centric is really putting the customer problem in the center and making it easy for the customer to, um, you know, speak with your customer service, to um, negotiate a deal, to complete the purchase, to refund it, return it, rebuy again, to recommend it to a friend, um, etc. 
so that customer centricity. And of course, when it comes to regulations, yes, but regulations in the West, because the collective West doesn't actually exist. It's all these different economies that are trying to, uh, you know, negotiate and find some ways to collaborate on major issues, but it's not working. The collective West as a system that regulates or moves forward, it fortunately, unfortunately, does not exist. And there are uh, a few companies today that are very much focusing on building a super app, such as, for instance, WhatsApp. Yeah, so Meta is very much invested in getting WhatsApp up to speed. It will take them a while, but there are markets where Meta products are dominating internet. If we look at Burma, Myanmar, right? A few years ago, the whole internet was Facebook, right? Or Meta as a platform. And of course, they tried to introduce their own messenger. It didn't really work. People didn't want to move to that platform to chat with friends. They tried to introduce their own payments through Apple Pay and all that. Again, it's a very limited success. They, they have some success with their uh, shops and, you know, marketplaces, but you just get too much spam and, you know, you don't really qualify your sellers. So trust is very, very low. So right now they're looking at WhatsApp as an opportunity to create a curated private pool, private traffic, a community where brands and businesses can actually build a meaningful um, direct-to-consumer conversation, CRM, et cetera, et cetera. The app is not ready yet, but you've also, if anybody's using WhatsApp here, you've also seen that there are a lot more features on the groups, on the privacy. You can send messages to yourself now. You can encrypt the chat, et cetera. So they're moving in that direction, and there's a lot of companies already today that are on their website, on their whatever apps, they're actually connecting the customer service to WhatsApp back end and start operating uh, direct to consumer a lot uh, closer. So it's not unimaginable that in a couple of years from now, they will be able to arrive at one point or the other at some version of the super app. Yeah, maybe a, 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 a mighty app, not the super app. Yet. <laughs> okay. mighty. For, yeah, working on it. And the other thing that it brings up is that... Um, as you write in the book, and I was like, oh, wow, WeChat. When I first discovered WeChat, uh, I think it was probably because I was going to China and I got on, I was like, oh my gosh, it's so much better than WhatsApp. And then you told me and I felt, oh no, WeChat outside of China has nothing to do with the WeChat inside of China. And I was like, oh, well, it was so good. And that's why I sort of deflated on, on WeChat, it doesn't have as many bells and whistles as maybe it has inside with the, you know, and, and you see so many of these little things that were started in WeChat, as far as I, I can tell. For example, uh, you know, having images or icons or emojis fly up the, the screen. That was something that I remember with WeChat happening by itself. If you wrote Happy Christmas to somebody, all of a sudden it knew that and, and had little Christmas trees running up the screen. Not so many innovations now, but let's let's park that and and move on because some of the the things that are interesting to me are are with regard to management and leadership and and so you have these huge companies now. I mean, gen, genuinely, you know, rock, you know, top of the world type of companies and, and building culture and and management styles. And you talk about obviously some good, some bad in China and and uh, what other companies can bring. But I, I have to believe that at this scale, they are suffering from things like a burnout. Uh, they are suffering things like uh, bureaucracy. Uh, 
and and how do you keep that what do you call it the um the it's not the you have some form of leadership which is very um cowboy the the maverick that's it the maverick leadership style um so in in china one of the questions i wanted to ask was what what is the narrative around purpose is is purpose a thing uh like it might be out of patagonia or are we generally sort of i would say in a smaller level purpose is making money Purpose is making customers happy, and and that's the level of purpose. Mm, very good question. So again, anything that I say will be a gross generalization. China Naturally. is a big country. There's a lot of different companies that have their own philosophies, and there's a lot of people that connect uh, with the company because they just need money or because they really want to contribute to something larger themselves, just like in, you know, in any other country of the world. In general, if I could talk about Chinese kind of uh, philosophy, uh, very often Chinese in general, when they view any situation, they are a lot more holistic, <clears throat> a lot more harmonious. They look at a problem or at a situation as a whole system. So in other words, they are looking at the forest, not a particular tree. But uh, in the West, we typically single out the problem. We call it our mission. And we try to solve that specific problem through the company. And we call it our, you know, we, we name it our calling or whatnot. So looking at, you know, champion companies such as Alibaba, for instance, right? Up until recently, right now, they're going through their own internal mess with all the restructuring, you know, top people uh, losing uh, some of their posts and, uh, of course, uh, being divided into uh, six um, different entities plus Alibaba Group. That's a whole different story. But Alibaba for years was operating out of 100-year strategy, so they had a big, big vision. And the same thing happens with, for example, Huawei. Huawei says it doesn't matter whether it's going to take me three years longer or five years shorter. But my big vision is to become the biggest infrastructure provider for the next age of humanity. So if this is your goal, if you look at it so big, it doesn't matter whether somebody puts sanctions on your mobile phones, right? Because you just have a very, very big uh, long-term plan and vision. So on the one hand, Chinese companies very often have that big um, holistic, let's say, view. But at the same time, Chinese companies are also operating um, in a very competitive, very fast-paced world where they need to deliver results yesterday. Everything had to happen yesterday. And they can only work like this through what we call DIDA, right? It is uh, digitally enhanced direct autonomy. In other words, you need to allow your middle managers and lower managers to autonomously solve the problems. So when I go and ask a customer service person, uh, when I'm purchasing, let's say, a phone case for my phone, I go and ask her, do you have that same phone case, but in orange, she will reply me within 30 seconds. Typically, 90% of, of companies reply within 30 seconds. 
Uh, and then she will say, no, we don't have orange, but we have this kind. And you can order orange, but it's going to cost five times more expensive. We're going to do the, let's say, tailored color for you. So she is able to solve my problem. If I am an unhappy customer, they have just like with Virgin Atlantic or previously Zappos, right? They have certain autonomy to also make sure that I am happy and ultimately have a good experience. So uh, Chinese companies work through that autonomy. That puts enormous pressure on not only managers, but also teams. And this is where we have, um, you know, 996, right? 9 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Sometimes they work 10, 10, 7. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's uh, it's even tougher. But ultimately, on the one hand, it's it's a crazy pace of the market and digitalization. On the other hand, is that the pressure and responsibility and accountability is on you directly. You cannot always push it up to your boss and think that, okay, you know, the, the, the big guys in the big room, the boardroom will handle your problem. And on the other hand, of course, there is a certain toxicity, not only in China, but in the whole, let's say, Asian setup, when you don't leave your office before your boss leaves the office, that happens across, I don't know, Japan, you know, South Korea and many other places here in Asia. And I'm sure, you know, in many other places around the world. So all of that comes together to create a very stressful environment. Apart from all that, as I said, China is a very competitive market. So unless you work for somebody like Alibaba and Huawei, and even those companies went through big, let's say, layoffs, right? The, the tech layoffs that were happening in the past year, year and a half. Um, you, yeah, your, your, your job is on the line. And you need to deliver. Like, for example, Xiaomi, one uh, famous you know, tech company. In reality, they are a uh, IoT platform. They have a platform for IoT devices for your home and for other places. And they are looking for all these inventors that come to them with hardware products. And they say, okay, I'm going to take this product and I'm going to put a Xiaomi logo on it. I'm going to manufacture it in my facilities potentially, and I'm going to plug it into my ecosystem. But so this is the company where they do not have a strategy that goes on for years and years. Um, one of my friends working for this company jokes and says, our only strategy is double every year. No matter what you do, if your department can double every year, you're doing a good job. So invent new products, cut half of your staff, do whatever you want, double every year. <clears throat> So again, that creates a certain, uh, certain um, uh, also way of operating that is very, very different from a structured top-down or bottom-up numbers-driven, projections-driven um, strategy. Because many Chinese companies have seen again and again that doesn't matter how much you project and how much you plan, the reality hits and it very often hits differently. So there's a lot of things we can learn because... Um, Chinese management and leadership models have proven to be innovative, have proven to produce outstanding products, outstanding customer service, outstanding returns. And of course, they also have produced very tough, uh, you know, working culture that is not balanced and, you know, definitely not sustainable long term. So there are things that we can learn from China's leadership models. And there's a lot of things that Chinese uh, companies for the benefit of their uh, for the uh, longevity as a business also need to learn from, let's say, collective West. Well, that was why I was excited to have my book, Future Proof, translated into Chinese uh, and to try to bring some of the Western uh, thoughts into that. So just to recap, what I heard there was that the Chinese have a very holistic approach over you know, a much broader view 
Uh, and it reminds me of the Japanese, the same, they have that same sort of full context view. They don't look at the individual in the painting. They say there's a painting on a wall in a house as a, you know, what do you see in that painting? And then um, very long-term uh, vision, which also the government of course takes. And then the funny thing you add is it's also very fast. So fast long-term thinking is sort of what I, I felt captured it all. And then, you mentioned this DIDA, the Digitally Enhanced Directed Autonomy, which is very interesting. So purpose in, in this regard would, in my opinion, seem to be a very low-level version of purpose as opposed to you know, making the world a better place or trying to be... Um, I would more... say, yeah, this is the side of the question that I kind of omitted. I, I uh, lost, uh, lost the trade of thought, but... I believe it is dual. First of all, the purpose is always harmony. Hmm. Harmony. It needs to be harmonious development for the majority. So harmony is always not about an individual. It's about the majority. So this is very big. And for majority of people, companies, government uh, offices, harmony is the ultimate outcome. And then the second layer, the layer under that is you need to add value and make money. As long as you add value to your customer and make money in the process, you're all good. And the big direction is harmony. Fascinating. So um, there are other things which in the West we get all excited about. Um, transparency is one of them. We talk about trust. Uh, authenticity, and and you mentioned how everybody has to has an account that actually is real. In other words, it's me behind the account. You can't hide behind anonymous uh, things. And then uh, things like mental health, uh, diversity, inclusion. Which of these are landing big in China, and which are, let's say, there's no real emphasis on it. Um. All the topics that you've mentioned, all the topics that are occupying minds of people in uh, Namibia, uh, Germany, uh, the UK, uh, Brazil, or the US are occupying the minds of people in China. So we are ultimately all very much the same. Uh, the degree differs. Um, for example, right now, a very big topic in China is green agenda. And people really genuinely care about it. They are willing to pay for greener alternatives. They are asking ourselves themselves, um, how can they be part of the solution or how are they being part of the problem? They are keeping companies more and more accountable, etc. So this is, again, a global thing. Um, secondly, um, we've mental... actually just want just want to say that that's something that the West probably has a different view of. They they tend to group China with pollution, fast fast growing, and so on. I mean, I think that's how we view it outside. So that's a really interesting insight. And per capita, per capita pollution in China, as of let's say household garbage in China, is lower than that in the US, much lower. Well, so the US when we talk is about so bad China is the biggest polluter <clears throat> per what? 
Like Absolutely. per capita, it's not. But per what? If China is the factor in, of the world and, and manufacturing is inherently polluting, then okay. But if we are manufacturing for the world, so there's a lot, of course, data, any data, any number can be played the way you want to play it. Mm. And I would say we shall always tell human stories. Um, and humans, like Chinese people, just like any other person in the world, want to, um, you know, live happily, want to progress in their career, contribute beyond themselves, make money, provide better life for their children, enjoy a few holidays a year, and, you know, eat nicely. And it's a very human desires. And uh, when it comes to insecurities, when it comes to their dreams and hopes for the future, they are all the same. And green agenda, we all understand that we live on this planet. We are not just Chinese or American or British or, or Uruguayan. We are humans first and we have this one planet. And, you know, more and more people, young people in particular, take that um, stance that we are humans first. Right. And um, uh, that is why calling somebody, you know, you are contributing most of the pollution, playing the numbers. It is a very dangerous thing to do because we take it away. We make it less human and make it all about make it very, very, very negative. And it's difficult to build bridges when we make it so negative again, because data can be so manipulated. Easily, so easily manipulated. Um, so the second thing that uh, Chinese obviously care for, just like people around the world do, is mental health. There's a huge mental health crisis globally, and China is not uh, an exception. China, in fact, has probably gone through an even more dramatic uh, shakeup during this whole pandemic. Yeah, the pandemic started in China. Then it was sort of brought under control in the first one year, one and a half years. It was actually very properly managed and people lived almost normal life. But then the last year of the pandemic with all the lockdowns and very, I would say, severe implementation on the ground. It wasn't the central government, but it was on the ground implementation where, uh, of course, a lot of incidents happened that should not have happened, right? Uh, they shook up the whole nation. People are tired. People do not see uh, the future as optimistic as before china was a very optimistic market imagine this for 30 years every single year was much better than the year before not just a little better but much better and suddenly we go through this uh pandemic uh obviously it is psychologically difficult economically difficult and people feel they are totally out of control, that nothing that they do matters. Tomorrow they can be locked up again and not able to leave their house and they have to order food at eight o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning on the app in order to eat. And this is 2022 we're talking about. So of course it was extremely difficult. And a lot of young people also lost much when it comes to social skills, right? If you are, uh, let's say in school, imagine you're in high school and university for three years, you're barely interacting with your classmates and you're sitting in front of a Zoom call or, you know, a Chinese version of that. It's 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 just not nice, right? Um, so a lot of professionals they decided to reinvent themselves and moved to smaller towns, opened coffee shops, decided to take a year off and travel the country. Um, some people, uh, you know, changed 
uh, their attitude to life. They do not want to be um, persuaded by their parents or grandparents to get married anymore. They want to be happy singles. They move in with their girlfriends or boyfriends together in a big house and just live as friends, etc. So a lot, a lot of things are shifting. Of course, a lot of elderly. China is an aging society. It ages very, very fast. And... Um, uh, a lot of these older people also do not want to be the caregivers to their grandchildren, right? They want to live their own life. And this is mm. a big shift from what we had, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. They say, you know what? I'm still young. I'm strong. I don't need to take care of my grandkids. I want to be, again, surrounded by my friends, living in a little house, fishing every day, uh, traveling the world, etc. So um, psychological crisis comes with shifts in behavior in shifts uh shifts in self-identity and of course uh, i would say 80 percent of people that i know that live uh either foreigners that live in mainland china or friends that live in first second tier cities 80 percent of them have a coach or a psychologist with whom they call uh, talk at least uh, once every two weeks so there's also a huge industry on the rise. And unfortunately, because the industry is so young, the quality varies. Yeah, sometimes it is great. Sometimes it is just uh, very, very bad. So that is another thing. Um, there were a couple of other uh, points that you've mentioned about from mental health. What was Well, well things like transparency. How about that one? Yeah. Well, that's the transparency. Um, are you talking about data transparency or talking about well, there in general, there's just calls for transparency. transparency. I I want to know how your AI works. Right. I want to know what you're trying to do. What are your motivations? Right. So in general, in China, we need to understand that there is a social contract with the government, and the social contract is as long as the government delivers growth and everybody lives better year after year, we are giving them mandate of heaven. So mandate of heaven is actually a very imperial Chinese concept saying that if the emperor or the dynasty rules us well and we continue to thrive, we as people are going to continue supporting this regime, this dynasty, this emperor. So this mandate of heaven is exactly the same thing. There's a social contract. And Chinese people understand that the uh, you know, access to certain information or certain platforms uh, or you know, certain concepts is restricted. They know it. It's not a surprise to them if they really want to access a different information through VPNs, a portion of population can do that. Um, but at the same time, in general, there is rather a strong trust in government that government has the best um, best um, intentions for the majority of people in mind. And that is why when it comes to, let's say, regulating platforms, right? I want to know how exactly your AI works, etc. People generally place, in my opinion, subjective, of course, more trust in how government regulates those platforms compared to the West. Because in the West, most of the people just say, oh, you know, these guys are not qualified to regulate these tech companies and these tech companies do whatever they want with my data and I feel really insecure and unprotected. And if I want to be protected, I need to be the one doing that. So I need to start my own kind of mini research. I need to, you know, opt out of everything. I need to take charge. In China, very often, because of this social construct and because of the environment, uh, people still 
I believe, trust the government a lot more when it comes to actually having their best interest at heart and regulating the platforms. And if something goes wrong, you know, they can, they can, you know, exit platforms, quit, complain, create a PR crisis for this company on Weibo and any other platform. Um, so that, you know, these are some of my thoughts when it comes to transparency. But of course, transparency can take many different forms. Um, and and total transparency basically never exists anywhere. Ashley, I, there's so many other questions I would have loved to plow into. You're a font of, of much information, insights, great energy. And uh, what I do is I would recommend anybody who's listening and still listening to go and check out your a lot of books that you have, uh, what you write about, uh, follow you on LinkedIn if possible. You have your great newsletter. What are the best ways? What links would you like people to go to to check you out, Ashley? Um, just check me out on LinkedIn at Ashley Dudarinok. And uh, yes, I also have ashleydudarinok.com. Uh, where you can see more about myself or there are two companies. One is called chosan.co uh, and the other one is elleries.com.hk. And um, any of these means would lead you to connect with my team. Uh, and of course, if you're interested in any insights from digital China, uh, just follow me on any social media channels. My outcome is to give you a slightly different business news from China that are human stories that are... Um, more real, I would say, and less charged uh, and always focused on business uh, because ultimately business is great because we come together, add value and make money. And everybody in the world, independently on whether they're based, ultimately want to add value to something bigger than themselves and in the process, make money to sustain themselves further. Ashley, should I say? Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Minta. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
politicians and made a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Despite revenges and struggle to see, live for the challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. The feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man here in these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man. Put me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.